Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is, what is the preventive and diagnostic value of coronary calcium scores and also CT angiography? And we are very lucky to have an international expert on it, Dr. Matthew Budoff, MD. Uh, he's a professor of medicine at UCLA School of Medicine. He's a cardiologist. He's the director and professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine and director of cardiac CT and the division of cardiology at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Torrance, California. So what prompted you to put the energy into making this really a happening thing uh, that coronary calcium is so important as a, a screening or uh, preventive screening type technology for heart disease? Yeah, so, you know, I think that uh, we have great treatments, right? We have preventive treatments, we have dietary exercise interventions, we have uh, many good uh, drug therapies, both nutraceutical and pharmaceutical therapies that lower cardiac risk, but we don't always know who to treat. And we can be fooled by exterior, you know, appearances. We know the people who look sometimes like Jim Fix are not so healthy inside, even though they look like they're going to live forever. And we know people who, the opposite, who look like Winston Churchill, uh, sitting there smoking a cigar, weighing three times as much as Jim Fix, do live forever. And we're wrong sometimes about the intrinsic cardiac risk. So looking inside the heart gives me at least great insight into who I need to focus more on for some of these preventive treatments. So tell us a little about the biochemistry of calcification of the coronary artery and, and why is that significant of risk? Yeah, so it's literally the exact same process as bone formation. And you have to remember the word atherosclerosis, which means hardening of the arteries, was described back in the Middle Ages when people dropped dead of heart attacks and they found that their arteries had these basically were like little rocks. So I always tell patients to think of their normal coronary arteries are like hoses. If you turn the water on in a hose, it dilates a little bit, it gets a little bit bigger, it absorbs some of the water, and the water doesn't shoot out for a little while sometimes. It takes a while to fill the hose. But what happens is our nice compliant hoses in our body turn into lead pipes. Very stiff, the water shoots through at high pressure, and that high pressure causes a lot of damage. As the water is shooting through at a much faster rate, it causes damage to the blood vessels, which begets other problems, causes plaques to rupture. So calcification is hardening of the arteries, and a hard, stiff artery is not a healthy artery. So how do we get from cholesterol going underneath the endothelium, and then there's this inflammatory entity to the hard calcium part? Yeah, so it's plaque rupture. So literally, we have all of these what we call microvascular plaque ruptures. Imagine a tiny little plaque that just breaks. It doesn't cause any major heart attack or stroke, but the plaque goes through some remodeling process. And the body's mechanism to protect itself is to lay down calcium. So it tries to wall off this plaque, this, this lipid-rich uh, core, from the blood vessel so that the two can't communicate. So you can't get a plaque rupture. But over time, you get a lot of microscopic plaque ruptures. The artery gets stiffer and stiffer. Calcium gets laid down and you end up with a much more remodeled uh, pathological artery. So that the microvascular ruptures are different than the 
the rupture that would cause a clot. Exactly. Would, These are those are macrovascular and that plaque ruptures through the endothelium. Right. Those are the ones that actually penetrate the endothelium and literally cause a an acute heart attack or stroke. So how then does the amount of healing relate to the amount of disease? So the only people who go through these microvascular plaque ruptures are patients who have atherosclerosis. And the more times that, the more plaques that you have, the more total disease burden that you have. So what we say is calcium is the tip of the iceberg. Imagine if your total atherosclerotic plaque was this massive iceberg, what you see floating on the surface of the water is only about 20% of the total iceberg. We know that down below is 80%, but we don't need to, the Titanic didn't need to send divers below the surface of the water to say, hey, check out and see if there's any ice that might hurt our hull, or is this iceberg all floating on the surface? They knew that if they saw a big iceberg off their bow, there was a bigger problem. Calcium's exactly the same. You see a lot of coronary calcium, you have a lot of soft plaque, a lot of fibrous plaque, and you're, you have a lot of atherosclerosis or plaque in the arteries. So I get that part. Then if the, the real, con well, the biggest concern is rupture, correct? Am I? Yes, that's correct. So there's a clot and then we got problems with a stroke or a heart attack or, or clot somewhere. So is it like an 80-20 split ballparkish? Yep. Yep. So it stays at 80-20 more or less. I mean, there are some people early in life that only have soft plaque and don't yet have calcification. So we don't use the calcium score in people under the age of 35 or 40 because they might have a, a slightly different balance. But Starry, uh, this guy named Starry was a, a pathologist in New Orleans and he did the Starry classifications. So from normal coronaries to end stage and calcification is actually stage three. It starts early and then stage four, five, six, it gets progressively worse, but it's not like the last thing that happens is calcification. Calcium is microscopic. It lays down some plaque. The plaques that rupture may not be heavily calcified, but the calcified plaque person, the person who has a lot of calcium, has a lot of other plaques as well, 80% more, and therefore is at risk. So they're at risk for more of the plaque rupture or they're risk for slow occlusion. So more plaque rupture. So we think of them not as the vulnerable plaque because the vulnerable plaque may not be calcified, but the vulnerable patient. The patient who's already had 20 microscopic plaque ruptures is more likely to have a macroscopic plaque rupture, a big plaque rupture that causes a heart attack, stroke, or death. All right. So now I see that part. So why do we even need to do CT angiography then? If you there's because the CT angiography shows you the different types of soft plaque, correct? Yes. All right. So then why do we need to do that? Or why would we do that? So I think in the preventive world, I would say we mostly stick to a coronary calcium scan. We want, I want to know who has plaque and who does not. I want to know who has a ton of plaque and who has just a little bit because I can I can adjust my therapies accordingly. CT angiography doesn't add a, a lot of information to that part of the equation. CT angiography is supposed to be a diagnostic test, not a prognostic test. So it's supposed to tell us you have some chest pain, is it coming from coronaries or is it non-cardiac chest pain? And CT angiography is very good at looking for stenosis, but plaque calcium score is probably a good enough test. So stenosis would be, so you have someone with chest pain, they got a big coronary calcium score, you're going to assume they have stenosis? Or, or so When you say stenosis, you mean 
tightening of the artery. Tightening. So we don't always know because some patients will have a lot of calcification, but because they exercise, because they have good, uh, healthy coronaries that can absorb a lot of it, they have a lot of plaque, maybe a bad family history, bad genetics, but their arteries do not get a tight blockage. So to see the blockages, how tight is the blockage? We need to add dye, we need to add some contrast into a CT angiogram. So a CT angiogram is a diagnostic test for chest pain. A calcium score is a prognostic test to identify people who have higher levels of plaque who maybe have a heart attack. So the CT angio is more for a symptomatic patient? Yes. Okay, so let's say you have a really high score. Why do you, would you reflex them up to a CT angiography if they didn't have symptoms? I wouldn't. Okay, okay. So I would say asymptomatic, all I need is a calcium score. Symptomatic, I need a CT angiogram. Is there anything you can tell us relatively definitive about the different types of soft plaque? So there's, a, there's three types of soft plaque or non-calcified plaque, if you will. There's the low attenuation plaque. That's also been called the necrotic core. That's thought to be pure lipid, probably heavily inflamed, probably something that's much more pathological. Some of the vulnerable plaque studies have said that type of plaque is it's just pure lipid, very inflammatory, probably one of the worst types of plaques. Then you have a more stable plaque, kind of fibro fatty. It's got some fibrous tissue in there, kind of laying down that foundation to be a little more stable, less likely to rupture. And then you've got pure fibrous plaque, which may actually be somewhat protective that the fibrosis kind of stabilizes the plaque and again then can turn into calcific plaque. So there's a few different phases of plaque. Is that kind of like on top of the, the fibrous plaque is on top, like the top of a volcano with a... Exactly, kind of walls off the top of the artery. There's a thin layer that separates the, the soft plaque from the vessel, and as that thickens, it gets more protective. So you have a thick cap, fibroatheroma, that's more protective than if it's thin. If it's thin, it can break three. So you can see those on CT angiography? Kind yes, of, sort of. we can see the plaque. We can see the types of plaque. We can't always see exactly how thick the cap is. But then couldn't you see where the person might be more of at risk for rupturing with the first type of plaque you talked about? Yes. So we can see that. We're still doing research studies to say, should we reflexly put in a stent when we see a lot of that vulnerable plaque? And I don't think we know that yet. So I do these markers from Cleveland Heart Lab. Everybody does CRP and that can be it's a general marker but do you ever correlate because i'd like to do that the myeloperoxidase which supposedly is the enzyme that's released from the top of the plaque and the lp pla2 is supposedly an enzyme that's released from the i call it the lava of the plaque those are supposedly when they're elevated plaque rupture might be imminent or yep so we've done a, a fair amount of studies with lp pla2 i think a much better inflammatory marker than c-reactive protein just because it's more specific we've done less with myeloperoxidase or mpo and i think we need to do more research there to figure that out both the also with the timing of it does a maybe a rapid increase in mpo or lppla2 might portend a more short-term problem uh, and if it's slowly decreasing maybe pretends more of a stabilization pattern so i also think the changes in these markers are going to be very important but i don't know if we really fully understand that or at least i don't fully understand that yet because i've seen them change over a couple of months i mean i've seen them you know if you put some in a program they go down and to me it would be like for bone loss you have the dexa test and then we have ntilopeptides which is something you can do in a month to see if your therapy is working right so this is kind of like my vision of that that 
okay, you can't do a coronary calcium score for another year? Uh, probably a year. Yeah, I'd say a year. We do them over, uh, at, at one-year intervals for, for people who are really engaged. But you're right. It takes a while to remodel the plaque and to get those changes in calcium scores. So then, see, it's, then it would be, so the reason I would like those markers to be a value for short-term is because you don't know if your therapy's working. I mean, all right, so let's say you put them on a stat and lipids go down. But how do you know that that therapy is working to do what we want it to do. Right. So I would say that, that those markers are great and probably going to help us with that answer. I'd say another thing to consider would be these endothelial function testing, looking at the brachial artery reactivity. That could probably change. We know it changes in hours. There's been some studies at McDonald's showing that your brachial artery reactivity gets worse in hours after having a, a, a Big Mac meal. So I, I think that there's definitely good opportunity to look at the, how, how healthy are those pipes, how, how compliant is that hose or is it all stiff and, and diseased by looking at things like brachial artery reactivity? I, I don't know if I answer this question right sometimes in the, when I'm doing some wellness counseling in the scanner, but when you have the slow plaque accumulation, not the rupture, I, I heard that you have to have at least 75% occlusion before you might have symptoms, but it's still making that artery stiff and making the end organ not get as much as it would normally get probably is that that's correct? true no that's true so you might not have a rupture and a stroke or heart attack but you still might have reduced function yes and we know that thickening or that uh phenomenon of making the arteries stiffer is also bad there's ways of measuring how quickly the blood flows through the body and how and that velocity the higher the velocity the more diseased the the organs get how much better in your opinion is a corium calci coronary calcium score than the cm so the the problem with the carotid intimal medial thickness test or imt is that it for one thing it measures the wrong thing so intimal medial thickness measures mostly the media. Media is much thicker than the intima. Atherosclerosis is only the intima. So the whole basis of the test is incorrect because 80% of what it's measuring is just the normal wall of the, of the carotid. What you want to measure if you're going to do carotid imaging is probably look at plaque. If they have a visual plaque in the carotid, they have atherosclerosis. So the, the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology have said Class 3 should not do carotid IMT imaging. That's the current recommendation for screening. It should not be done um, because it gives us the wrong answer or it misses the, the, the real heart of the issue. So I think calcium scoring is a lot better than IMT. So when they do color Doppler of the carotid bifurcation, they're looking for... Plaque and stenosis. And stenosis. That's different. So that's a better way of looking at it. But the intimal medial test is largely dead. It's not paid for. And the guidelines say don't do it. But I, I would say carotid plaque imaging is still a good thing to do and might, might be a better risk of stroke than the coronary calcium scanning. All right, so you have, you go in and get the coronary calcium score, and I've done, I mean, it's very quick. I mean, that's the amazing part about it. You go like in and out. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. So everybody's going to ask, what's the radiation exposure? Right, so it's the same as a mammogram. So uh, it's about 0.7 millisieverts. With our new equipment now, it's 0.5 millisieverts. So what is that? Well, background radiation, just being alive in Los Angeles, is 2.5 millisieverts a year cosmic rays, television, maybe an occasional short-term flight. Those things start to add up and you get a little bit of exposure of ionizing radiation. So it's a few months of being alive. So if you're a 50-year-old person, now you've gotten the radiation of a 50-year-old person plus three months. It's trivial 
compared to the overall things that we do. Now, other things are high. Nuclear testing, you get a, a stress nuclear, that's 16 millisieverts. This is 0.5. So that's 32 times the radiation exposure to get a stress nuclear test with your cardiologist. If you get a, a CT of the spine for spinal problems, that's 7 millisieverts. That's 14 times the dose. So it's we try to keep it very low because we don't want to expose healthy people and say, okay, good news, your coronaries are clean. Bad news, you're going to get cancer in 20 years because we just blasted you. So it's a very low dose, just like mammography. We think the benefit outweighs the risk. There is a risk of mammography, of increasing radiation to the breast tissue, but we think finding the early cancer is more important. Backtracking a bit, but why would you do a regular angiography, which, which gives you a two-dimensional picture? Is that correct, the black and That's white? That's correct, yeah. Versus just doing a CT angio, and it's less invasive, right? Yeah, so there's a new study that came out at the, one of the big cardiology meetings that is being published, hopefully in about a month, called CONSERVE. And they said that exact question. If you had a person who needed to know what's going on, they had chest pain, they had a positive treadmill or something, they randomized half the people to CT angiography, three-dimensional. They randomized half the people to cardiac cath, invasive angiography and all they did by getting the invasive angiogram was get more radiation spend twice as much money overall and have 80 percent more invasive procedures so there was absolutely no value in going straight for an invasive angiogram compared to a ct angiogram um, so i would say we still need to go to the cath lab and do those tests when we want to put in a stent but for diagnostic purposes, I would always insist with my doctor to get a CT angiogram, a three-dimensional angiogram, instead of an invasive angiogram. It's also a lot safer, along with being 20 to 40-fold cheaper. So if a patient you know, doesn't want to get something stuck up their femoral artery, then that would be a good alternative. And that's what I do with a lot of patients, and I, I counsel a lot of them. Sometimes I say, you know what? You have severe disease. You need to get the invasive angiogram. Doctors need to put in stents. But for most people, they're just trying to diagnose themselves, and a diagnostic test should be non-invasive. So I'm, I'm much more in favor of a 3D CT angiogram. We are talking to Matthew Budoff, who is a professor of medicine at UCLA School of Medicine and director of the uh, cardiac CT lab uh, here at uh, UCLA Harbor Medical Center. So there's a classification for the coronary calcium scores. You have a zero score, 1 to 10, 11 to 100, 101 to 400, and over 400. How and when do you get concerned with which category? <laughs> I mean, I guess you have something to do for each category. Yeah, so it's like, you know, calcium scoring is like golf, low score wins. Um, you want a zero. Zero is about half of us have scores of zero. And that means no measurable plaque in the coronaries yet. Doesn't mean you're invincible, but you're doing great. As plaque gets laid down, the calcium score goes up and it's a volume. So a score of 100 is moderate plaque burden already. Score of 400 severe plaque burden but it can go up into the thousands i've seen patients with 10 12 thousand scores everything is calcified they're they're walking around like like rocks but but they're still walking around so it, it's worse to have a higher score but there's things that we can do to 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 abate that so can you be walking around with the real stiff artery but not have an increase for the plaque rupture does that make any sense? You could, and there are some people who've stabilized plaque. So think of a calcium score as lifetime accumulation of atherosclerosis. So let's say you were like the Jim Fix example I gave earlier. You were overweight, bad family history, ate poorly, 
developed a lot of plaque in your coronaries. Then you start being preventive. You change your life. You hit that midlife crisis. You said, I'm going to run. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to eat well. The plaque is still there. You can't get rid of most of it. So your calcium score stops going up. So you have somewhat stiff arteries. You have some plaque in the arteries, but you've stopped the process. So now you've plateaued and you're much better off than if your calcium score was still climbing. But we can't get rid of it all. We don't have liquid Drano yet for the coronaries that's going to pull the plaque out. So if you still had the calcified plaque, you would assume, so let's say you stabilized, would that mean you have the soft plaque the same amount? So you could get rid of soft plaque. Soft plaque is reversible. We've shown some work with our aged garlic that soft plaque is reversible. Statins, the cholesterol pills, reverse soft plaque. And there's a lot of early data with, um, you know, uh, different diets and lifestyles that you can reverse some of the soft plaque. But the calcified plaque is more like scar tissue. And once it's laid down, it's probably not going anywhere in any significant amount. So I'm a, a little confused. We have the tip of the iceberg and you had the, the 2080. And then you're saying it's possible if the calcium score stayed the same, that 20%, that you could still reduce some of the soft plaque. But you wouldn't know that unless you did CT angio. Right. So the only way we could really see regression of atherosclerosis, for example, we're doing clinical trials now with garlic, with fish oil, with different therapies. We're looking for regression of the soft plaque because we can't see the calciums regress. So I use calcium scores over time to show patients, hey, you've stopped the, the, the plaque from building up, but I can't show them that their arteries are getting bigger, healthier, less soft plaque without a CT angiogram. And I don't think you need to do that. I think that we would have a good hint that if their calcium score stops going up, that they're doing well, but some patients want more information. So insurance companies don't pay for this screening correct? Yeah, so Medicare pays for calcium scoring in certain states like California. They'll, they'll cover the calcium score for risk. Most private insurance companies will not pay because it's a screening test and they don't want to pay for screening. So why would Medicare pays for, what diagnosis do you have to give? I mean, if you have it's risk factors. Yeah, so it's three risk factors. Three risk factors? Yeah, yeah. So if you had blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and, and family history, or history of smoking, or a low HDL, those would all qualify. So tell me your uh, tell me your cholesterol story. I just got finished reading Doctor Sinatra's <laughs> version that uh, you know cholesterol is not an issue. Just tell me your two cents on what you think about cholesterol. So, I mean, I still think that LDL cholesterol is certainly a, a bad player. I think it causes these lipid cores to develop. I think that triglycerides may play a role as well as we think about the inflammatory state. We talked earlier about myeloperoxidase and LPPLA2. I think triglycerides are kind of talk about the metabolic syndrome and the pro-inflammatory state. So I still think triglycerides are somewhat of a bad player and LDL cholesterol is a very bad player. Um, I don't think total cholesterol is informative, and I think HDL naturally is somewhat cardioprotective, but raising it, we're still juries out on whether or not raising HDL is going to be a good thing. Do you ever, you know, the number of LDL particles, do you think that's a value? And I do. I think the number of bad particles floating around, I think of LDL particles as kind of like license plates on the freeway. The more license plates that are driving around, the more congested it is, the worse it is. So it doesn't matter if it's a big bus or a small one. So in other words, right. it doesn't matter if it's small LDL. If or you have a million cars on the road, whether some of them are buses or not, right. it's still a bad thing. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. So tell me about your experience with statins. I mean, you know, I, I mean, again, I come from the integrated medicine world where it's where it's evil. You know, I mean, you know, it's going to cause um, dementia. It's going to cause, and I've seen people have side effects. So what's your experience? Because obviously, your cardiologist should probably use a fair amount. I do, and I I do think that they do have side effects in some patients, and and I I always tell patients that. Luckily, all the side effects that I'm aware of with statins are reversible. So if they do happen to be in that percentage of patients, which I still think is a relatively small percentage that gets a side effect, that we can always stop it. So I would tell patients, don't assume you're going to be in the 5% or 8% or whatever number you want to put out there for, for side effects. Don't assume you're going to be in the 5 or 8%. Assume you're going to be in the 92% that don't get any side effects. And the reason is, is because I think the data is quite clear. Study after study, patients randomized to stat live longer. The large trials show that mortality, all-cause mortality goes down. And that's got to be something good if you're living longer. I'm not saying there's other, there's not other ways to do that. And I think that's where integrative physicians dis differ. I don't think they think statins are the data is, well, I mean, with rare exception, I don't think they think the data is fal falsified or not real. I believe that many of them just think that they can get there in another way that might be healthier and still get that same type of benefit. Have you ever done any CoQ10 experience or studies to see if it reduces side effects? Because that's the big thing. It lowers, you know, and I've seen that, lowers CoQ10 levels. Do you ever I do use CoQ10 in my practice for those patients who get statin-induced myopathy or myalgias. I, I've seen some benefit. Obviously, it doesn't work in everybody, but I agree with that. I think, I think statins do lower CoQ10 levels in the mitochondria of muscles, and I think repleting it is probably a good idea. So I do use a lot of CoQ10 for those patients who are inclined. If I put them on a statin or if they're on a statin and they're getting some side effects, I do use CoQ10. Any other uh, pearls you have of helping people not get a heart attack when they've got coronary heart disease? I mean, what are your, your favorite things that you seem to go to that, or, or that you observe work in people? Yeah, so, you know, I, I still go back to the simple things, what I call, I tell them the ABCs. So I, I think low-dose aspirin, if they have established atherosclerosis or heart disease, is a good idea. 81 milligrams, not more than that. I think blood pressure control is always important. Cholesterol, different ways of tackling it, but I think it's helpful. Diet. Obviously, that's more complicated than it sounds, but it depends on their goals of weight reduction versus longevity, and I think there's different diets for different scenarios, even in the same patient. E is exercise, probably the most important thing, but I'm not so good at getting them to exercise. If I think uh, my office is on the second floor, and I think if the elevator were out, some patient, some people would cancel their appointments with me and not want to walk up a flight of steps. So is the exercise, do you see it, I mean, I don't know if you ever, how you test for it, but do you see an anti-inflammatory benefit or it just helps with overall well-being and gets people to lose? I think it does everything. I think exercise uh, decreases your risk of developing diabetes and improves your glycemic control. It lowers your bad cholesterol and raises your good cholesterol. I think it lowers the blood pressure. I think people live longer who are exercisers. So I don't, I don't see any downside to it, except some people just don't want to exercise. F is fish or fish oil. I think it's still important. I think those are essential amino, uh, omega, uh, so omegas. Fish oil because why? Because omega-3s and no, omega-6s. No, no. I yeah. got that. But what, you know, because this, I mean, I read these um, 
You know, meta-analysis, it doesn't help prevent primary, secondary Yeah, so issues. most so of the studies were done with one gram of fish oil. And uh, uh, EPA, DHA, one gram, not always the most purified version of that. So they're probably getting like 600 milligrams a day, which might be underdosed a little bit. So I'm waiting for this REDUCE-IT trial to come out later this year. This is a pure EPA, 98% pure, so 980 milligrams of EPA per thousand milligram capsule, four of them a day. So four grams of EPA. I think the REDUCE IT trial, I think it will work. We'll see if it works. I think we have some good evidence that, that we can supplement. And the only reason I would push for that is because we're terrible as a society of eating fish. Most of the fish we eat are when we go out to eat, and most of the fish we eat when we go out to eat are things like tilapia, which is very dry and has very little omegas in it. So I don't think we eat the right fish all day long. We're not like the Japanese who are eating a ton of sushi and salmon and tuna and really keeping their, their intrinsic omegas high. And then G is my research, is garlic. Maybe someday we'll get up to G in the algorithm and we'll see if garlic can be added to regimens. I think it's part of the Mediterranean diet as is the fish. So I think D, E, F, and G are all part of the Mediterranean diet and I think there's some good data there. You know, we've talked about that before. It's not the perfect diet, but I think that is one of the zones that people do seem to live a little bit longer and probably because of some of these things. Okay. All right. Any other pearls you want to talk about? No, I think that's the big one. I would say that if patients are at risk, if people are at risk of heart disease and it's not known yet, I think a simple calcium score is uh, now an inexpensive and, and simple way to really find out personalized medicine. Do you have the disease and would you benefit from some of these advanced therapies that we talked about? And the price range a patient should look for in the the CAC score? Should be 150 or lower, $150 or lower, and there are places around the country. If they're paying cash for it? If they're paying cash, it should be 150 or lower, where 129 is our cash price. We've tried to reduce the price because insurance isn't universally paying for it, and I want more people to get the test. It still requires a million-dollar scanner, so I do have to still pay some bills. No, I, I get that. And so that brings up the question, when do you know if it's a bad scanner or not a good machine? I mean, So I would look for people who have a scanner that has at least 64 slices. And you can easily ask anybody, Is it a, what, how many slices does the scanner have? And if they say 16 or 4, then I would move on. Those scanners are 20 years old, and the chance of you getting pretty pictures and accurate pictures is very low. So 64 slices is the, the lowest. That's the lowest I would what go. Is, and what, goes, what, is our, uh, what, you, what is yours here? We're at 256. So it's 64 or higher. I don't think, I wouldn't say you have to look for a 256. There's 320s. I mean, there's different numbers. They're not all, there's a, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but, uh, but uh, at least that number tells you how old the scanner is. 64 slice scanners were introduced 10 years ago. So if they have it older than a 64, that's an old piece of equipment. And they don't, they don't get the pretty pictures anymore. Do you have to have a skilled person to read it? Calcium score is pretty easy. Our technologists read it here. We don't, I mean, I look at them as a physician. I, I overread them, but it's pretty easy. So I, you don't really, I wouldn't look for the expertise as much as the better equipment. So I want to thank Dr. Budoff for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And I'll have some links underneath uh, for information. And until next time, stay and be well.